So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Big hello to Mal, who tweeted us at The Modern Man to say he was listening to last week's show while sunning himself in Abu Dhabi. There was photographic evidence as well of his legs in swimming trunks, so I believe that to be true. According to his Twitter biog, Mal is an actor and a former trainee accountant, and amazingly, I promise you, I'm not making this up, the musical director of Banana Man the Musical. Uh, Anyway, he wanted to become a Manbassador by leaving us a review on iTunes, but then he tried to, and iTunes told him he couldn't because he'd already left us a review in 2015. That is true devotion to the cause. Thank you, Mal. Uh, Hello to to Alan from Scotland, who has a job currently driving around the German Alps, usually for at least five hours a day, he says, during which time he consumes a lot of podcasts. He says he's now made his way through all of Answer Me This, and so he's working his way through The Modern Man. Good job, sir. Happy trucking. Right, uh, on to business. And this week's feature interview, I'm not going to beat around the bush here, is about paedophiles. It's with an academic who's spent years talking to self-defined paedophiles about their sexual attraction to children. It is a pretty contentious conversation. I think when you listen to it, you may find yourself reconsidering how we treat paedophiles. You may just find it makes you angry, which is how I feel at one point, but I think you will find it interesting. Uh, Also on today's show, you will learn how to run your first marathon, how much it costs to eat chicken nuggets every day for a year, and how to liven up the taste of a cocktail at an all-inclusive resort. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. So I was really the first researcher who was out there interviewing paedophiles in the community who were not known to any authorities. Meeting the men whose sexual fantasies make them pariahs. One dishwasher that we broke down had tiny little golden silicon pearls inside. And Alex Fox gets creative with landfill in this week's Fox Up. But first, it's the zeitgeist, your guide to all the trends that matter with a man who spent like an hour in the sun over the weekend and has now gone lobster colour. It's Ollie Pitt. Hi, Ollie. What are the big trends of the week? Uh, this year's must-have gas mask. OK. It's called the Air Vida. It is a wearable air purifier. And what you do is you put it around your neck. It looks like a pair of headphones that a cool person would wear because cool people wear their headphones around their neck and not on their head. Apparently, according to their website... This thing creates 2 million negative ions per centimetres cubed to capture small airborne particles from PM2.5 to pollen around you. Sounds like bullshit, but it isn't all its fact because it's on the website. Yeah, but if you you say it with that arch intonation and your West Country twang, then of course people are going to say that sounds like bullshit. I'm imagining you now as Sarah Jessica Parker in the advert, looking glamorous, wearing the air purifier, turning to the camera and saying, now the science bit. Ions. Yeah. Doesn't it stand up that if the air is polluted, uh, a personal air purifier worn around your neck might help the air that you're breathing? Yes, but that's not really the argument here, okay? This is a uh, capitalist's way of solving the problem. They're marketing it as a fashion statement. When it's it's not not doing anything. It's like, okay, if you want to solve the problem, stop driving cars. So you're saying that, what, the government need to make sure we don't pollute the air and there's nothing a company selling you a thing that you hang around your neck can do about it. Yeah, because only the people that can afford to stop breathing in other people's shit is only those people that are able to have pure air. The rest of us have to choke. It is a bit like something out of one of Ben Elton's 1980s novels, isn't it? You I haven't know, read any of them. Okay, they're, well, they're, they're all basically like that. Like, Evil Corp creates a thing that goes around your neck because the government have failed in polluting our air. 40,000 people die prematurely in this country. Have you seen The Crown yet on Netflix? No. When it came out, you were like, I don't need to see that. The royal family's problems aren't real problems. Go and get a job, mate. That was basically your approach to it. And I was Mm. like, no, it'll be really good. It's written by Peter Morgan and stuff. You still had that stupid view. Anyway, I was (laughs) battling my way through the box set bit by bit. And there's an episode all about the Great Fog that happened. And Churchill very nearly lost his job as Prime Minister because they weren't able to deal with it in London. 52. 
Yeah, and that, that was caused by basically Battersea Power Station. Yeah, but Churchill, as a result of that, he did he he created the uh, Clean Air Act. Whereas now, instead, rich people just buy the air purifier thing that I was just talking about as a load of bollocks and drive around in Range Rovers. What are your other trends of the week? Retweets. A chap called Carter Wilkerson. Oh, he- I know this story. Oh, God. Nugs for Carter. There's a chap called Carter Wilkerson. And he and- loves his nugs. And he loves his nugs. So he tweeted Wendy's. Yo, at Wendy's, how many retweets for a year of free chicken nuggets? And uh, Wendy's tweeted back, uh, just w- what is a number that just seems to be uh, grabbed from nowhere? 18 million. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, but the most retweeted tweet ever was the Ellen selfie, which reached 3.3 million tweets. So yeah. asking him to get 18 million is quite... Quite unrealistic, because quite that selfie was the one at the Oscars that had all the Hollywood A-listers in it. He basically then tweeted, uh, help me please, a man needs his nugs. He does. And as it stands currently, I have the tweet right here, I've just refreshed it. Yeah. It is at 2.245614 million retweets. Wow. That's impressive. That is impressive, yeah, That's because really there's, no, there's no charity case here. It's literally just a student who likes nuggets, and it, nuggets aren't expensive. Yeah, and Wendy's, in response to that, have tweeted, honestly, has gotten way more RTs than we expected. Yeah, it's a great success for their brand, isn't it? He's not going to reach 18 million retweets. No. But even as much as they've got out of it, they could give him a lifetime supply of nuggets now and be quids in, really. Here we are talking about it. You can't even get a Wendy's burger in the UK anymore. They shut down years ago. Well, I've uh, I've actually done you a bit of a favour here. I've costed Have you it out. You bought me a Wendy's. No, I've costed it out. Oh. How much value? I for love money. a Wendy's. Do you? I, yeah, they used to have one in Stevenage Leisure Park in the bowling alley. Great. Who is Wendy? That's a whole other podcast as to who the original Wendy was. That's like asking who Ronald McDonald is. It's oh, like right. a whole secret society you have to be initiated in before you find that out. Oh, okay. She's purveyor of the wet one. I don't even know what that. that was what is they that... called it in the fifties. <laughs> Wendy's the wet one. <laughs> Did. Like is that really is that true? Yeah, that's why we don't have Wendy's anymore. <laughs> anyway, Americans are laughing because they still have Wendy's. They think Wendy's is Wendy's is good, but it was it was anyway. They do square burgers. But I've, I've broken it down. I've done some actual maths to figure out how much value for money they're getting from this chap because it looks like he's on he's on course. He's only got to get a million more retweets and then he's beaten Ellen's. But I costed it out. So in Wendy's, a six-piece chicken nugget meal thing. Or just no, not the meal, just the nuggets is one dollar sixty nine. Mm-hmm. So presuming he gets one of those a day for three hundred and sixty five days, because that's a year's worth of chicken nuggets, right? Six hundred and sixteen dollars it would cost them to do that, which for how doesn't long? for a year, no. for a whole year. Six hundred, no. yeah, six hundred. That's one, not very much, is it? It's not very much, especially that's, when uh, you can buy nuggets every day for six hundred and sixteen dollars a year. Yeah, maybe you should just get and a, that's, you know, buy them that's, up front. That's exactly that's not cost price either, is it? No. That's that it's is probably costing trade. Wendy's a hundred dollars. That's a worryingly cheap chicken, though. It I mean, is, it yeah, goes it is, back yeah. to my, you know, but whatever. Goes back to your what? Were you about to say your vegetarian? My vegetarian. Yeah. How's that been going? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Are pretty you a vegetarian? Good. I bet you're not. I'm a pescatarian. <laughs> are no, you? don't laugh. Don't laugh. <laughs> hey, look, I've got an interesting. Po- I, I How long did it last? I mean, it, twenty-four hours. Twenty-four hours before you gave it and ate some fish. Listen, pescatarianism is the vegetarianism of the nineties. Right. Don't look at me confused. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to rem- I'm trying to quantify whether what you're saying is right. So you're saying vegetarians in the 90s used to eat fish, but now it's not Exactly. Allowed. That's where the filet fish came from at McDonald's. Because they're like, oh, well, vegetarians need true. to... Like, yeah. every Indian kid I went to school with was like, yeah, I'm vegetarian, and then all went and ate filet fish at McDonald's. But it was peer pressure, I think. Exactly. Although I did have one mate, actually, who went to McDonald's and ordered a cheeseburger without the bun. So then you just got like the bun, the relish, and a slice of processed cheese. Oh, that sounds disgusting. Yeah. That sounds revolting. Well, I should have gone to Wendy's. Anyway, uh, when are we ending this segment? For him to get 365 days of chicken nuggets would cost them $616, right? And I've worked out that if they wanted to buy 18 million retweets mm. on socialshop.co, it would. Like an incredible place to go. It's a good place to go. Mm. It would cost them $72,000. That means that if he reaches the 3.3 million retweets, which he's on target to do, it would have cost them $13,200. And he's done it for 616 And finally, Ollie Pitt, what have you got for us this week? Salty coffee. You have pricked my ears up. Vine Pear. They said, they have said, that adding salt to your coffee is now, according to them, a thing. Okay, who are Vine Pair? I don't know, they're a website. Right. What it does, apparently, is it reduces the bitterness of, in particular, bad coffee. So coffee that's been over-brewed. Ah. So instead of adding sugar... This is a problem in my life. Is it really? Yes, there's a few places that I work where, to save money, I don't buy a coffee en route. Name and shame. 
Uh, Come on, let's hear them. No, because why not? Because they employ me. What? Oh, okay. <laughs> but they have a filter coffee jug that's on one of those heat plates. Yeah. And it's always a bit too strong. And I always think, well, I have saved three quid by having the office coffee, but it's a bit strong. And I'm I'm like trying to cut back on dairy. I don't have sugar these days, so I'd like a solution. Well, apparently. It's salt. Yeah, but the thing is, salt is also something that I'm trying to cut back on. Yeah, salt's really bad as well, yeah. which, which, which is weird because they keep they keep saying it. They, they're like, oh yeah, you know, sh- sugar makes you fat and it's really bad for you and that yeah. kind of thing. And uh, well, salt essentially gives you heart disease, doesn't it? Like, I mean, exactly. Yeah, so it seems stupid. But it's like, have you ever had a michelada? I didn't even know what that is, but it's, it sounds it's amazing. like it, what is it? It's a Mexican thing where you basically take lime juice, Tabasco, and salt and add it to beer. It's incredible, Ooh. but. Um, I started having it a lot when I went out to a particular Mexican restaurant mm. and then I started making it at home and then I stopped because I thought you know I'm already going to die a few months early just because of this alcohol thing yeah don't need to be adding salt to my beer no you know no. so it sounds revolting it's delicious but you, you know to you, be avoided yeah but you don't you don't need to be adding salt to your beer but what we are going to do because I haven't bothered to come up with a game is we're going to add salt to a cup of coffee that oh brilliant we're do, okay so we've got coffee here yep there it is and That's it. There's the sound of it being put a, down on the a plate table with some white powder on it, which disappointingly is salt. And uh, apparently, you just put like a a pinch. I think I'm pretty sure it says a pinch. Okay. A little <laughs> pretty sure. I mean, it's quite an more, important. But more moment. than that, Ollie's just putting. He's just sprinkling it in. Like, that is a pinch. On. That's like, what a pinch put, is. Let, Define put, a pinch apart from what I'm doing. Like I'm taking some salt between my two fingers. You know, like I'm, you know, like Ramsay does on a cooking show. He like dials straight. He goes straight into his old sea salt pot, and he'll go. Yeah. Like that, ha- Ainsley. Yes. That's like that. But I know, but what's he cooking? I don't know. Well, I'll probably, tell you. Probably some meat, the murdering bastard. <laughs> He's cooking like a big, yeah, joint of beef or something. Yeah. This is a tiny cup of coffee, so that is a pinch of salt. I know, but it's do not it, a big wok, is yes, it? Yes, but at least make some kind of culinary effort. Just right. like put it in there, and then just. Okay. It's now got quite a lot of salt in. Okay. Oh. Mm. Give it. Here. I want to have a go. It tastes a bit like you're drinking coffee in the sea. That's revolting. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's a bit like salted caramel chocolate. No, it isn't. It's a bit like someone spilt salt in my coffee. It's disgusting. I mean, I don't know if you do this when you're on holiday in sunny places, mm. but you sometimes take your drink into the sea with you. At an all-inclusive resort, this is something that I'm perfectly prepared to do <laughs> when I'm not worried about spilling it. Yeah, I, I, I have been known to have a yeah. beer whilst in the sea. Beer yes. in the sea, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. on a lilo, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's got that vibe to it now. It's like I've got the container with me in the ocean. Do you know, even if this was good, I wouldn't do it at home because of the aforementioned health risks. Mm. Like, you know, I once read an article in a magazine, actually, that said, if you're doing what I was doing, trying to cut back on dairy, add cinnamon to your coffee for a sugary spice. That sounds good. Yeah, but for some reason, it's become acceptable in Starbucks, and yet at home, I just felt like a dick adding cinnamon to my coffee. I felt like I had ideas above my station. No one's watching you. (laughs) Just add cinnamon to your coffee. What you're talking about, the whole world revolves around me, Ollie. (sighs) Coming up next on my show, Named After Me, uh, we'll have more trends. If you'd like to submit one, what should you do with it? At The Modern Man on Twitter, yep. M-A-N-N. Or, 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 or what? Or, uh, uh, tweet something and then get 18 million retweets and I might just notice it on a website yeah. somewhere because that's all I spend my time doing. Piet needs his nugs. Hello, man fans. I'm James Adams. I'm a writer and a marathon runner, and these are my top three Squarespace life hacks on how to run your first marathon. So my first tip is to use the mile markers as check-ins. It sounds obviously quite simple, just put one foot in front of the other and do that 50,000 times and then you're at the end of the marathon and what could go wrong there. But there are a lot of things uh, along the way that that make it kind of more difficult. You can kind of get thirsty, you can get hungry, you can kind of be, you know, your form might be slumping. Every time I go through a mile marker, I run myself through this kind of mental checklist. So do I feel thirsty? Do I kind of feel low on energy? Am I, you know, hitting the ground correctly? You know, is my kind of form good? It could be, it could be anything. And I've seen this when I've helped out at, at water stations. Is you see, you see people who haven't drank for two hours and all of a sudden they're trying to put a litre of fluid in their mouth and you know it's clearly kind of too late so using the mile markers just as a kind of mental check say okay you know am I you know heads up high or but anything that you do to run better use those as a kind of a mental trigger. My second tip is to take each mile as it comes 
Um, you've probably all kind of heard about the wall in the marathon, which happens about two hours into the race. And what happens is you all of a sudden start feeling pretty terrible. And you think, I've got another 10 miles of this. And then your kind of mind starts racing ahead of, well, you know, if I feel bad at this mile, what about the next mile? And what about the next mile? Having done quite a few of these, I kind of got over that. I thought, you know what, this is only a temporary thing. It's just kind of my, my body adjusting to the occasion. This is going to be hard for the next four or five miles or so, but it will get better. It's not going to stop me finishing or anything like that. So my third and final tip is think about the story you'll tell. In fact, often, sometimes, the worse the race, the funnier the story. And I remember my first marathon, I was so nervous, I got a nosebleed at the start and I ended up in the toilets at half a mile and then coming out of the toilets and I was actually in last place. All of these experiences give us the stories that then allow us to, later on, you can use as currency in, in kind of situations and help others achieve their goals. So no matter how bad a race you have, it can always be a great story in the pub. You can find more of my life hacks on my website, runningandstuff.com. That's hosted by Squarespace. Start your own website with Squarespace today with a two-week free trial using the code MAN. That's M-A-N-N to get 10% off. Now, what's your reaction when I say the word paedophile? For most of us, it's a word synonymous with depravity. Even if you strip away all the tabloid hysteria, being sexually attracted to children is perhaps our society's last taboo. It often provokes a more visceral reaction than terrorism or even cannibalism. But sociologist Dr. Sarah Good spent six years talking to and writing about self-defined paedophiles. And she thinks the time has come for paedophiles to be confident to talk more openly about their sexuality and become more accepted by society. So, how did she come to develop this controversial view? The first thing that happened was a leaflet that was in some professional journal or something that I was reading... It was from the, the NSPCC. It was in the early 2000s. And it was basically fundraising. And it was talking about paedophiles as being cunning and devious. And there are many of them. So therefore, you know, we need your help. And basically, give us your money and we will protect your children from these monsters over there. And I just thought, Actually, none of that makes any sense. You know, the, the most basic psychology tells us that that's not true, that there are not monsters over there and then the rest of us who are goodies here. It's a fairy story. So it's a way of helping adults to feel more comfortable about the reality of child sexual abuse. And it, it doesn't serve the needs of keeping children safe. So I thought that has to be challenged. So which bit? Because it is true, isn't it, that more sexual abuse of children happens within families and friendship circles than happens from strangers. Lots of people know that fact. Yep. But still, there are strangers who go about abusing children. And even within families, you can understand why people would term them as monsters. So yep. what's the bit that's wrong? The behaviour is absolutely monstrous. The behaviour of harming children sexually we know has hugely significant long-term consequences. So, so there's, there's no question about that. I'm not saying what these people do is not wrong. But what I am saying is we need to understand what they do much, much more carefully and subtly. So when we think about paedophiles, we tend to think about kind of middle-aged men who've just kind of sprung into awareness somehow. They've, they've just sprung into existence. And, of course, that's not reality. What has happened is a child has been born, they've become a teenager, they've become sexually aware, they've begun to realise that there is some part of them which is sexually attracted to children. That might be a, a massively important part of their, of their lives. And they've made a decision about how to respond to that sexual interest or that sexual attraction. So there's a process there, there's a journey, and it's a journey that we can all relate to because we've all 
come to an understanding and an awareness of our sexuality and our sexual attraction, whoever it is that we're sexually attracted to. So already we're no longer needing to talk about them and us, those monsters over there and us here, because we're beginning to understand, no, what we're actually talking about is we're talking about this complexity and this, this weird muddle that we call human sexuality. And so when you saw that leaflet, yep. what were you thinking it should say? You know, the NSPCC are trying to prevent child abuse. What should that leaflet have said? What I would like to see and what I'm working towards creating is leaflets which are aimed at the individuals who are potential perpetrators. We also, of course, obviously need information and awareness raising for the adults around that potential offender situation because adults around them need to be aware. But you see, adults can only be aware that there's a potential risk to children if they understand that the person who's presenting that risk is just like anybody else. That's the bit that we miss mm. if we're talking about paedophiles as monsters. Then we go, oh, but we could never have known that that bloke was going to do that because he's a nice, normal bloke. He's just like us. Well, of course he bloody is. He would be. Well, this is the thing that's been quite obvious in the coverage of Operation U-Tree and all of the kind of celebrity paedophiles, for want of a better phrase, in the wake of Jimmy Savile. Mm. I mean, obviously, Jimmy Savile was the closest you could get to a monster pretty much. But actually, you know, people have been saying since of other people that have gone to prison for, for fewer crimes, yeah. oh, but he's a really nice guy, yeah. as if the two things can't coexist. Exactly, exactly. And that's the danger of telling ourselves stupid fairy stories. You know, we as adults need to grow up a bit and be a bit more realistic about this. Um, because then you get sort of really confusing situations where, for example, we all hate Gary Glitter, but we're really confused about Roman Polanski and how we should be responding to him. Mm. And right at the sort of the normal everyday level as well, because I think a lot of people think, oh, if I knew that somebody was sexually attracted to kids or they, you know, they wanted to do something to my kid, I'd bloody well beat him up, mm. right? They think that that's how they'd respond. And... Actually, the evidence shows that very often, even when we know that somebody might actually be doing sexually harmful things to children, we make excuses for them and we justify, we rationalise what they might be doing, we minimise what they might be doing, we protect them, we collude in what they're doing because we've already formed a, a view of this person as a nice person and psychologically, it's very hard to say, well, I'm, I'm wrong. So, fired up by this interest from this one leaflet, you yes. then decided to take an academic course and you, you started some research into paedophilia. Well, I, I wrote a couple of papers uh, for conferences on how we need to rethink our notion of paedophiles. And somebody got in touch with me and said, could they have a copy of my paper? And because I'd been doing this background research, I knew that the email address that they were using was from a pro-paedophile website. So I emailed back to this person saying, by all means, you can have a copy of my paper. And it would be really interesting to talk to somebody for whom this was an issue. Because I didn't want to say, obviously, you know, oh, I think that perhaps you are a paedophile. <laughs> But I just sort of gently suggested it would be quite an interesting thing. And he emailed back to me and he said, I am an out paedophile. I'm a civil rights campaigner in the United States for the civil rights of paedophiles. And I know hundreds and hundreds of paedophiles all across America, the vast majority of whom are not known to anybody in authority. How did you react, by the way, just to that very concept? Because yes. as you said it, I could yes, actually you, feel you. myself getting angry. Yes. I want to interview you because yes. I'm interested in exactly what you say, the spectrum of human sexuality. There are some people who are attracted to children, and that's always been the case. Mm. And yet, when you say that someone says, mm. I'm a civil rights campaigner for mm. the protection of paedophiles, I can't help but actually feel myself get physically angry. Yes, and you're, and you're right to do that, okay? Because... 
What we need to remember all the time is that there are two different categories that we're talking about here. One is paedophiles, which means an adult who has a sexual attraction to children. And the other category that gets mixed up with that is child sex abuser. So in other words, is it the is it the action that makes you a child sex abuser? The thought makes you a paedophile? Exactly. So there's the attraction and the action. Mm. And those two things are different. This guy was, as far as I know, a non-offending paedophile. So he had the attraction. He self-defined as a paedophile because he was sexually attracted to children. Mm. And as far as I know, he did not act on that sexual attraction. So when he was talking about the civil rights for paedophiles, what he was saying was he wanted to be able to say openly, I am sexually attracted to children and I will not act on that sexual attraction and I want people around me to be aware of the potential risks so they will not put me in a situation where I might be tempted. So, for example, they will not leave me alone with children so they know and I know that no bad thing is going to happen. But what happened was he came out openly, in fact, he came out openly on a major radio show in the United States and they heard a small child talking in the background and they said to him, are you, are you a parent? Do you have a child? And he said, yes, on air. And the result of all of that was that social services got involved. His child was taken into care. His wife divorced him. He lost his job. He was repeatedly beaten up and threatened with death and so forth. So the reason why he started a civil lawsuit was to say, if we paedophiles, people who are sexually attracted to children, can't come out and say openly that they're sexually attracted to children and they want support and help not to offend, then what we're doing is we're pushing them into a position where they're terrified to talk about it, they're terrified to seek help, so we're actually making it much, much more dangerous. Do you see? Yes, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're sexually attracted to adults, yes, no one's saying you can't have a fantasy where you're having yeah. sex with three or four or five or six adults. But at the point at which you force yourself on another adult without consent, that's rape. Yes. We all live in that world. So <laughs> why does a special case need to be made for paedophiles that they should be able to talk about it? I mean, everyone has their own internal sexual life. At the point at which you act on it, whoever you're interested in, that's a problem if consent hasn't been given. So why make a special case and say, I'm a paedophile and I need to tell everyone that I'm attracted to children? I can't control myself around children. Why is it different to not being able to control yourself around adults? I think... I think a lot of people who realise that they've got this involuntary sexual attraction are desperate not to act on it and they want to be able to talk about it because it's a burden for them. So they want to be able to open up and to share and also to have a circle of friends around them who can challenge them as well as support them. They might very well want to go and find a counsellor or a therapist. They don't always, but, but quite often that can be very, very helpful to look at um, strategies and ways of managing sexual urges, for example. I'm not arguing, and I'm sure this chap wasn't arguing, you know, that everybody with a sexual attraction to children needs to sort of stand up and shout it from the rooftops. But I do feel very strongly that if it becomes okay for men in particular, I mean, the, the figures for women are, are really very, very small. Women paedophiles do exist, but the vast majority of, of paedophiles are men. And if we are able to create a cultural climate where it becomes okay to talk about this, 
I think that that will take away a huge amount of the stigma, a huge amount of the pressure, and therefore it will actually result in better child protection because as well as the paedophile feeling supported, the people around him, the people in society generally, will have it in their minds that yes, there are a certain percentage of men, possibly research suggests maybe up to 20% of all men who have the capacity to be sexually aroused to children under certain circumstances. So if we as a society get that understanding into our heads, if we really understand that maybe up to one in five of all the men we know might have this capacity, then it becomes much, much more realistic to think about, okay, there are people that I know in my life around me and at work and so on who are sexually attracted to kids. So therefore, you know, we can all be much, much more aware and realistic about child protection. I mean, that's such a shocking statistic, the one in five statistic. Yeah. How do you think that really breaks down? Because although clearly all child sex abuse is child sex abuse, Mm -hmm. there is a difference. There's a difference in law between molesting a two-year-old and having sex with a 15-year-old. And when when that stat comes of one in five men, I'm guessing that that will include people who are looking at, you know, pornography that's labelled as Lolita and Twinks and all this stuff, which is often sort of 18 and 19-year-olds dressed up to look a little bit younger or may, in some very dark cases, be Mm. people who are 15 and 16, but they're not too. So the the one in five thing, I mean, I would be very surprised, wouldn't you, if one in five men was potentially attracted to toddlers? Uh, There's been ridiculously small numbers of studies done on it, okay? So I'm not betting my shirt on any of this stuff. But the studies that have been done are actually talking about children up to the age of 12. So we're not talking about the 14, 15, 16-year-olds, okay? We're talking about definitely children who haven't yet reached puberty. One in five men, according to those studies, are attracted to uh, children who aren't. have the capacity to be sexually aroused. I mean, it's just very hard. I mean, I was age. trying to justify yeah. it in my head because I was thinking, I don't think I do know anyone who could be attracted to an 11-year-old. What are the circumstances? Yes, but would they tell you? I guess not. They wouldn't tell you, right? But I don't know if I want them to tell me. You want but, a world but, where they would. I want a world where it becomes okay for somebody to say... I had a sexual fantasy about a 10-year-old or I, you know, I, I was masturbating to thoughts of this cousin of mine or something who's, you know, 10 or something. And the other person is able to say, that's not cool, but, you know, it doesn't make you a monster. Never, ever cross the line. Don't act on it. And and the point of all this is that by having those conversations, in your view, less acting on it would happen. Yes. I mean, we have to be really, really careful on that one because the emphasis always needs to be on child protection because what I'm not trying to do is to normalise this notion of sexual attraction to kids. But you did use the phrase remove the stigma. Now, you could say that the stigma has been removed from homosexuality. In most right-thinking people's minds, that's a good thing. Yep. But it probably has led to more young people coming out and saying I'm homosexual. Yes. And then acting on it. Yes. With paedophilia, if you say, well, let's remove the stigma, yes. you can understand why people would say, well, hold on, we know what's going to happen next. We're yes. going to be condoning more yes. paedophile activity. And we must never, ever condone sex offending okay, and child sexual abuse. That's really, really important. What I always have in my mind when I'm thinking about this is I've got in my mind a young man who's... 14, 15, 16 years old and he's developing his sexual identity and he's beginning to realise that while his peers are sexually attracted to girls or boys the same age as they are, he finds that he's only sexually attracted, say, to eight-year-olds. That's not something he chose. It's not something he can do anything about. He can't change it. And the only messages that he's been receiving up until now is that he is a monster and he is going to act. All we do is we give him this prediction 
that he is going to harm kids and then we're going to catch him and then we're going to put him in prison. And I want to get the message out there. You always have a choice. There are role models online. There's an organisation called Verped, Virtuous Pedophile. And it's a whole community. I think there's at least 900 on there now, probably more. They only set up a couple of years ago of self-defined paedophiles who are committed never to offend. And the other message that I think is really important is that some people do have kind of passing sexual interests and, and, or they find themselves online looking at extreme porn and then they find themselves looking at child sexual abuse images and they think, oh goodness, that must mean that I'm a paedophile. And then they become sort of obsessed about that. It becomes almost like an OCD thing where people start to think, I'm a bad person, I am a paedophile and, and they might even go to a therapist or something like that and the therapist will say, well actually no, you're not. You know, you are not a paedophile. But it's a way that people have these days of saying, I feel bad about who I am as a person. I'm not comfortable with who I am as a person. I, am, I don't like the sexual fantasies that I have in my head. And therefore, again, they think, oh, there's an inevitability there. You know, because I've had these, these bad sexual fantasies or I've looked at online images that I shouldn't have done, that means that I'm now on this kind of conveyor belt and I'm going to end up sexually abusing children. And the answer is, no, you're not. You've always got choice and you don't have to. And it's, you, it doesn't have to become part of your self-identity. It can be something that comes and goes. So did you speak to this bloke in America in the end? Then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he helped me to set up um, a thing called the Minor Attracted Adults Daily Lives Project. And they designed the logos and they set up the website and everything. And it was really, really difficult balancing act that went on for something mad, like over two years What's interesting is that within the last 10 years, I mean, I started my research in 2004. I think I published my first paper in 2004 on this topic. And I have seen a huge change, social change over this last 10 years or so, where it's become possible to talk about paedophiles and for people to understand that we're not talking necessarily about child sexual abuse, that the two categories are different, potentially can be different a paedophile does not need to sexually offend against kids and there are certainly a whole bunch of people who sexually offend against kids who would never ever define themselves as paedophiles and how would they define themselves well a lot of guys for example who view uh sexual abuse images online mm. would never ever ever classify themselves as paedophiles a lot of men have sexual fantasies that they find very difficult and that they don't necessarily like sometimes it's a question of how much you focus on that and build it up to be a big issue in your life there's a very very interesting anecdote I'm just going to tell you about the writer Blake Morrison hmm. he wrote a book about the James Bulger murder uh, and the book is called As If and what Blake Morrison is doing in that book is he's exploring the ways in which all of us have the capacity to do evil or to do wrong. And one of the anecdotes that he talks about in the book is he's got his, I think she's a little toddler, his little daughter sitting on his lap and he gets an erection. And he's horrified about that. And he certainly doesn't want his little baby daughter to, to know anything mm. about the fact that he's got an erection or anything like that. But he has. And so he tries to think about, oh, how did that happen? You know, you know, my, my, my penis just, just responded to the, the warmth and the movement and, mm. and so on. But it doesn't mean that I'm sexually attracted to children and it doesn't mean I'm going to do anything about it. It doesn't, it doesn't change who I am as a person. It's not part, it doesn't become part of my self-identity. And I, I've used that a lot in my teachings, actually, when I've been um, teaching social care students and so forth, because I think what Blake Morrison does there is he's, he's able to say to us, it's just one of these weird parts of human sexuality sometimes. It comes, it goes. 
And we certainly don't need to kind of dwell on it and amplify it and uh, make it part of our identity and then think that we have to act on it. What did you learn from talking to paedophiles? The big thing that I learned was that there are a whole bunch of men, I mean, we don't know what the proportions are of the total number of men who are sexually attracted to kids, but there's a whole bunch of men out there who have this sexual attraction to kids and they really don't want it. And they understand and they share that, they share that understanding that it's really harmful uh, to act sexually around kids and that kids actually don't want to act sexually, you know, with, with these adult guys. It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a male, it's an adult male fantasy sometimes, but it, it's not, it's not the kid's fantasy. You know, the seven-year-old is not sitting around fantasizing, oh God, I really want to have sex with a six-year-old man on a park bench or something like that, you know. They understand that. And they're looking for help. They're looking for ways to support them in being non-offending. Well, that's a new thing. Nobody knew that until I'd done that research, basically. Because the only people who'd done research really with paedophiles before were either people who were researching sex offenders in prisons, mainly, or there were a small number of studies of people who had been uh, investigating, for example, the paedophile information exchange, you know, where they were, broadly speaking, agreeing with these men that there's, you know, nothing too serious about men having sex with kids. So I was really the first researcher who was out there interviewing paedophiles in the community who were not known to any authorities, but I was doing it from a child protection perspective. The general public at large are resistant to having a serious grown-up conversation about this because they don't want to talk about it at all. Would you agree with that? No, I wouldn't, actually. I really do think that it has shifted hugely in the last 10 years. I mean, nowadays, whenever there's a a news item about this and whenever I'm in the media in some way or another and you look at the comments, about 50% of all the comments go, oh, they should all be killed at birth, they should all be castrated, they should all be put in prison, blah, blah, blah. And the other 50% go, well, hold on a minute. If somebody's saying that they're sexually attracted to kids and they didn't choose it and they don't want to act on it and they want to get help to make sure they never do act on it, good for them so they do get it I think it really has shifted and the funny thing is it's very often women who write to me and say I totally get what you're saying and not only that it's very very often women survivors who get in touch with me and they say I was sexually abused when I was a kid and I don't want any other children to be sexually abused and have to go through what I went through and what you're saying about understanding adult sexual attraction to children and helping people not to act on it makes a lot of sense and I totally support what you're doing. So they get it. Is the internet a force for good in this? <laughs> you, you talked about it being a place where paedophiles who have no wish to act on their paedophilia can support each other. But it's also clearly the place where a lot of child abuse images get shared and as you've discussed, it's the place where some people end up discovering an attraction to children that perhaps they never would have known they had unless it was put there as an option. Yeah, and also it's the place where uh, a lot of men choose to groom uh, and try and get in touch with young children. So I think the answer is, I think it is a force for good. I mean, clearly there's some terrible stuff out there and the explosion in child sexual abuse images online and so on more and more men in particular being sort of drawn into looking at pornography looking at extreme pornography and then looking at illegal images is incredibly harmful for our society but what gives me hope is that there are now these online communities so this young man that I always come back to who's just beginning to realise his sexual attraction to children. He goes online, he Googles the word paedophile. He goes and looks at the Wikipedia articles that there are on there now. And through the Wikipedia articles, he, he checks out the external links and he, and he finds himself in a community where people are saying to him, yes, you may be sexually interested in kids, but you can choose never ever to act on it. You can choose to stay safe you know, and keep children safe. And here are the reasons why that's a good thing to do. So all of that, to me, is incredibly hopeful and positive. 
I'm really optimistic about the future because I think society now has really got how damaging adult sexual contact with children actually is. People really understand that now, that the long the long term harm that, that results from that. And we now have resources in place. And we've got organisations like Stop So, which is the specialist treatment organisation for the prevention of sexual offending. You can go online and within a couple of days you will be put in touch with a therapist who is local to you, who is specially trained to deal with anybody who's worried about their sexual thoughts or their sexual behaviour. So we, we have resources in place now. It's getting better and better. Dr Sarah Good. You can find links to the resources that she mentioned and her two academic books on the subject on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And if you've been affected by any of the material in the discussion and need to talk to someone, we have links on our website too. Again, that's modernman.co.uk. Alex Fox is up next after this. Alex Fox, the Mistress of Love, has joined us once again for the Foxhole. And Alex, you come to us today straight from bashing a Toyota Yaris. I have indeed, yeah. Explain. I am a member of a team who run an event called Scrap Club, which once about every six months, we gather together a variety of obsolete items of electronics. So we've got washing machines, tumble dryers, microwaves, old kettles, printers, sometimes whole cars. We had a massive piano. People pay about £20 for a ticket. They get a protective hard hat, goggles, Mm -hmm. grippy gloves, and a weapon of your choice. I I mean, I'm worried where you're going with this, bearing in mind what most of your events entail. (laughs) It's nothing to do with sex. It is a huge release, uh, but not a a carnal one in this sense. You get to choose either between a mallet, a sledgehammer, or an iron bar, and then you get about 10 or 15 minutes to smash the shit out of all this old stuff. Wow. Yeah, so the reason I'm a, I'm a little bit scratched You do up have and, a bit of a scar yeah, there yeah, on I'm your arm. Yeah, I'm slightly scratched and I'm a little bit achy because yeah. my job involves actually moving the scrap in between each session and then cleaning up, sweeping up, moving all the debris. There's a lot of smashed glass and very small bits of circuit board and uh, par- bits of paraphernalia from inside these, these old... Uh, electronic goods uh, and that has to be swept up between each smash session because otherwise it can spring up and hit people in the face and stuff so it's basically like if the luddites had uh, organized a a theme park (laughs) event it appeals to people on lots of different levels there's the raw physical rush of getting to just annihilate something Mm. which we don't get to do a lot in our everyday lives we're encouraged to look after things and be neat and self-contained and it's just lovely to go absolutely batshit crazy with a mallet now and again and also Um, we're a bit disconnected from our waste aren't we you know we 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 throw stuff away we put it into sometimes we drive ourselves down to the to the tip but basically we, we put it into a bin and forget about it and it's quite nice in a way to be hands-on with the stuff you're throwing away and understand that it's dead. It's quite ethical, Scrap Club, as well. Everything that is smashed up is already destined for the skip. It is beyond repair. Um, but it's, it gives it extra life. You get to see what's inside it, which is often fascinating. Um, one dishwasher that we broke down had tiny little pearls, like golden silicon pearls inside that were part of the drainage system. It was surprisingly beautiful. We found money and photographs stashed down the back of TVs and VCRs where they've either been hidden or they've they've slipped into, into the insides of the machinery and, and been lost until that point. Yeah. Um, we found um, all sorts of surprising things things stashed away what's what's been your favorite item to personally smash i always smash a printer because my background is in journalism (laughs) uh, and unfortunately print journalism has gone over the years so i quite like to take out my frustrations on a printer plus uh, sometimes we do the sessions outside in which case i'm allowed to leave the printer cartridges in I'm allowed to keep the ink, ink cartridges there and they're often powdered so when you hit them with a sledgehammer these amazing vibrant plumes of coloured smoke are released into the air and it's, it's surprisingly beautiful 
How can we still be learning so much about each other after so many weeks, Alex? <laughs> I do lead a varied life. You certainly do. But we are here to talk about matters in the bedroom. And thank you, as ever, to mycondom.com for sponsoring our listener question of the week. Remind us about mycondom.com, Alex. Well, if they don't exactly provide free love, they do give us exceedingly cheap love. They do. Yeah. Uh, condoms start from just 20p. If you're a new user and you open an account with mycondom.com, you get up to 20 free condoms that you can just add to your basket for now. Wow, I didn't um, know. That's like yeah, a good. sort of prophylactic version of the Labrooks free bet, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't know about that. Uh, they, they give you a brand called Mojo, which are pretty good, actually. So okay. you can try up to 20 free Mojo condoms. And if you spend over a fiver your delivery costs the square root of sod all as well we have our own discount code as well but you've got to keep listening to the end of the show to find out what that is uh, here is this week's listener question it's from laughing girl i used to be called laughing boy uh derogatorily when i worked at itv for a period it sounds very sad that you're not anymore like one day the laughter stopped and now you're <laughs> glum ollie <laughs> cynical middle-aged ollie yeah uh she says dear alex i quite often laugh uncontrollably, immediately or soon after orgasm. It is totally hysterical and joyous, that's good, isn't it, I guess, and can go on for four or five minutes. Just when you think it's all over, it starts again and reminds me a little of laughing with friends at school. You know the kind where someone will eventually fall off a desk or pee themselves a little. It's very vivid, but yes, we're there. Although I am very clear that I'm not laughing at my husband, he says it is a little disconcerting, and I can see in his eyes that he's not sure what's going on. It would really help me if I could explain to him the biology behind this so he knows it's not a negative thing. In fact, I've never had this with anyone else that I've slept with. I see it as a compliment to him. Can you please help me find a way to explain what's going on? I love this question. Do you remember that old joke, what goes ha-ha bonk? It's a man laughing his head off. But in this case, it's <laughs> this woman. She, well, she goes bonk ha-ha. Bonk ha-ha, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she is not alone. I've heard from both men and women who have feel similarly ecstatic and, uh, and giggly after sex. And if you go online, you'll find numerous threads in Reddit from people in a very, very similar situation where they feel um, overcome with delight after they've orgasmed or mm. after they've had sex. But that is un- that is uh, understandably a little bit jarring and disconcerting <laughs> for their partners. Ollie, how would you feel if someone burst out laughing just after a, a bit of wham-bam, thank you, ma'am? Well, I have... I, I haven't I made have people laugh. I have been laughed at in bed, <laughs> says Ollie Man. I, I can <laughs> this relate. This is why you're laughing no longer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can relate to the thing of, uh, if one of you comes before the other, I can relate to the thing of the person who is perhaps no longer in flagrante finding the experience amusing because, you know, they're not in the heat of the moment anymore. That's happened a couple of times. Yeah. I've seen that happen. They're no longer in the zone, so suddenly your yeah. sex face suddenly is the whole thing seems to grotesque. Yes, yes. Yeah. Or, or her sex face. Like. <laughs> um, but yes, so I've, I've seen that. But that's different, isn't it? That's a 10-second acknowledgement that an awkwardness has passed. It's not the same as someone laughing uncontrollably for five minutes. Five minutes does sound like a really long time to laugh, but I... Like I say, I think this is a wonderful thing. Um, let's go through both the, the chemical and the psychological reasons why this might be happening. Mm. Okay, chemically, after you orgasm or if you're just enjoying yourself during sex, generally, even if you haven't reached a big, a big old climax, your body re- uh, produces an almighty slew of chemicals. You've got dopamine, you've got serotonin, you've got adrenaline, hormones and, and chemicals flood your system and it's very, very common that those will provoke an emotional reaction. Um, in this case, it's one of extreme joy. You often hear like a chocolatier or something being interviewed saying, ah, oh, we're triggering the same things in the brain as when you have an orgasm. And, and as a viewer or a listener, you're usually thinking, yeah, right. But actually, it does make sense. It's the pleasure bit of your brain, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's chem- it, that is the chemical makeup of pleasure. It makes complete sense to me that um, when this lady's body is charged with all these incredible chemicals, that her response to them is laughter. That's a very natural response. So she shouldn't worry that anything is going wrong here. As a side note, though... Just in case uh, this applies to her, there are certain medications that can produce this effect, including during sex. Certain antidepressants, fluoxetine and sertraline, I have heard people tell me those SSRIs have changed 
when people feel it's appropriate or feel or feel the urge to laugh mm. because they um, they affect the way that the the um, chemical makeup of your brain works. I do wonder Sometimes as well. Sometimes you can have uh, unusual effects. I do wonder as well whether there's an element of laughing at a funeral about this. You know, if she knows that her husband isn't that keen on her laughing, that in itself might make it funnier. Yeah, there might be a case where she's laughed once, realised her husband felt awkward about it, and now because there's pressure not to laugh, yeah. it ironically makes her want to laugh more. She says that this has never happened with anybody else. I would say that that is reflective of this relationship being mm. particularly intimate and trusting, mm. and also... Um, good on the husband here I would imagine very physically um, satisfying for her if sex is so good that afterwards she can't even control uh, her physical response and she's mm. completely overcome with hilarity and brilliance then that's surely a really good indicator that their sex life is actually great yes and I think that's the diplomatic way to tell him isn't it to explain to him is to say it's because you are so good in bed that I lose control that I lose my that I lose myself yeah I think they do need to have a chat about this if she's able to and it's very difficult to think logically when you're in the throes of passion mm. but if she's able to perhaps during the laughter she can reassure him by saying something like oh I love it when you make me feel this wonderful or oh, perhaps they could make it like a special trademark move between the two of them maybe even invent a nickname for it or something so that this guy her husband feels like it's something wonderful that he is inciting in her rather than something happens that's out of both of their control that makes him feel awkward so they need to own this it's, it's better than her bursting into tears as well isn't well it? bursting into <laughs> tears is also a thing that happens uh, and that happens quite a lot of people um, there's been a study recently uh, that was published in, the, in Sexual Medicine one of the journals uh, that said up to 46% of people I think they polled uh, 230 women experience of feelings of uh, the blues or crying or depression after sex uh, and the official name for it is postcoital dysphoria or mm. PCD so better to burst into peals and la- of laughter than to burst into tears absolutely yeah. Here, here. it would be a real shame when uh, the person who's written to us, when this lovely lady is having such a wonderful time during and after sex, and really that is the point of being intimate with someone, Mm. to have a great time and feel happy, it would be sad if she felt the need to suppress that, and it would be sad if that became something that she uh, became nervous or embarrassed about, and it could actually even impede her ability to orgasm. If she was getting so upset and feeling so awkward that her husband was going to feel bad about her laughter, that she was then nervous to the point of uh, it squashing her physical response that would be a terrible thing so I really do encourage this couple to talk about this embrace it and celebrate it don't turn it into something pathological it's part of the wonderful way in which you're wired but you're happy and you're experiencing orgasms and you're having a great time with, with your partner which is something that many many people don't have at all so go forth with your laughter and own it uh, if you have a question for Alex's bulging mailbag for next week, don't suppress that either. Go forth and send it in. Alex, don't how can people do that? Don't suppress your bulging mailbag for me. No, squirt it all over an email and send it to me via our website, which is uh, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And here's that discount code. If you want to buy yourself some incredibly good value condoms this weekend, go over to mycondom.com. And for 15% off, use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E. Well, that is almost it for this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to anoint a new ambassador for Hong Kong. It's Ruth, a British expat of 22 years standing, who describes herself as a, quote, mum, business owner and Durrani, which Google tells me means she enjoys the music of Durran Durran, as Tony Blackburn famously once called them. You can be a ambassador too, just buy us a beer, as Ruth did, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and then click Beer Money. Every penny goes towards supporting this podcast. Our theme is by Django Django, thank you chaps, and our record of the week is this, by Australian alt-hip-hop producer Jonty. The song's called Screwed, it features the guest vocals of Steve Lacey, and it's out now on Future Classic Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and for our season finale, we'll see you next Tuesday.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.